1: Hello and welcome to The Rugby Dungeon. Thank you for listening, thank you for subscribing, thank you for leaving reviews on iTunes. I really do appreciate that, please keep them coming. And of course, thank you for finding us on Twitter. I'm Jay Bairdmore, this podcast is at The Rugby Dungeon, and of course there is the world's biggest rugby podcast, The Egg Chasers Rugby Podcast, which even made it to The Times' top 30 podcasts quite unbelievably last week. Uh, that comes out every Sunday, me, Tim and Phil, and if you don't know what it's about, it's basically us three talking nonsense. Now I say talking nonsense because we talk at great length and with great ignorance about many legal aspects of the game of rugby. And that might be Tom O'Scott, it might be Cillian Willis' case, it might be Denny Salamone, in fact anything to do with Sale, hmm, strange enough. Today I thought i will clear that up by inviting a top sports lawyer onto the show, You'll get to meet and hear all the views of Steve Flynn very shortly, but first I've got a quick announcement. You may be aware that the Egg Chasers Rugby Podcast is going on tour to Romania. If you want to get involved with that, find our Facebook page, find the event, and over the 18th, 19th and 20th, we are going to Romania, we're going to do a live show, and we're going to watch Georgia versus Romania. Should be good, it should be the end of the European Nations Cup, or whatever that competition is called, and no doubt it's going to be Georgia versus Romania for that title. Come come along, it should be tremendous fun. The show is on the Sunday morning before the game, and yeah, it should be interesting. Now, I know you're not listening just to hear me waffle on about what we're doing next month in Romania, so without waiting any further, here is my interview with Steve Flynn. Hope you enjoy it. So I'm happy to be joined by, let me get this right, Sports lawyer, Munster fan, and RFU disciplinary officer, Steve Flynn. H- uh, how are you, Steve? And did I get all that right?
2: There or thereabouts. G- Good. Nice to be here. Thank you for come- asking me. Look long.
1: Uh, now, just for the benefit of our listeners, Steve, can you just tell us a bit about your background and what you do day to day.
2: So, I'm head of the sports law. Uh, Sports Media and Entertainment Group at St John's Barristers' Chambers, St John's Buildings Barristers' Chambers in Manchester. Um, We're a group of barristers who have sector-specific experience in the sports industry. Um, So we advise on different areas of um, law that apply to sports, so disciplinary issues, player contract issues, and disputes between players and agents and matters of that nature. My particular background is in contracts for players and sponsorship disputes and issues of that nature.
1: Oh okay. So I mean this this is just uh, off the top of my head now. This isn't on our little running order here. But um between players and agents and what what are the usual sort of dis- disputes that you that you would get? Well the
2: difficulty um for agents is they're obviously approaching players and trying to sell their options and what they can provide for them and players of potentially have a long-term agent and they may want to move from one agent to another. So they'll have contracts with agents and they may want to move from one to the other. So there might be issues of breach of contract. There may be issues in relation to agents having not done what they're supposed to under the contract. They may have entered them into deals that uh, the player didn't want to enter into. Or they may have been badly advised. Certainly at the moment, um, in a football context, there's a lot of issues about agents having advised players into tax schemes that are (laughs) hopefully limiting their exposure and those having gone wrong. And so um, there's issues as to whether they've acted negligently in terms of their
1: um, duty to their clients. Now, the agent world is fairly murky. I know there's a great range of quality within the agency market, but what is it currently like? I would be
2: defensive of most agents I think that agents um, do get a bad press because at the top end they're seen as taking huge amounts of money out of the game and not giving back much but I think that's uh, not accurate certainly in terms of rugby. Players Mm. um, aren't lawyers, they often haven't got the expertise in negotiating or understanding as to what they can get or should be entitled to in terms of negotiating so a good agent is worth his weight in gold, he adds more to a player. um, contract than he takes away. However, there are those who are unscrupulous and who do come into it simply for um, the money and don't represent the interests of their clients. And I think they're the ones who often get the high profile exposure, which causes difficulties um, for the other agents. I think that as I say, rugby tends to people be represented by either Companies who are well established or by people they have relationship with former players and people of that nature, mm. whereas football since they deregulated agency uh, agent regulations a couple of years ago, so now it's a free for all um, everybody and his wife is trying to get involved players are often, often represented by their parents who have no knowledge of the um, situation and end up trying to take money uh, out of the game out of the players
1: where did the football market become deregulated? Um,
2: I think we could have a podcast on that (laughs) uh, for a full couple of hours. Um, The difficulty is in England, there is a very uh, well-established system of um, regulating agents. That wasn't the same throughout the world. FIFA, being the governing body um, for the whole world, took a view that it was easier to deregulate Mm -hmm. across the board rather than deal with it. And um, certainly the FA rules were very well... um, thought of and operated very well but um, FIFA's just decided it's easier to deregulate the system and let people um, they have to register in the in England still but they don't have to um, have any training or qualifications as they used to
1: I'm right in thinking that r- agents in rugby do are, are registered yes that's right Excellent. Um, and last one on agents do, do, do you think the environment that they operate on uh, operate in particularly in the rugby sphere? is professional enough, that the levels of professionalism match the responsibility that they have?
2: I think so. Um, obviously, it's on a case-by-case basis. Um, some rugby players will have degrees in business or law, and they may be able to represent themselves and know what they expect, but others um, will be going into it straight out of school and have no um, understanding of what their options are. So I think that a good agent can provide that, and there is a professional um, ability there provided by the agents, but um, as I say, in any, any industry, in any, all walks of life, there are those who don't provide that professional uh, standard, and they're the ones that get the publicity and maybe cause the bad reputation.
1: Yeah. Well, you're based up in Manchester, which is fortunate, because I imagine anyone with a background in sports law must be getting quite a lot of work from sales sharks
2: at the moment. Well, certainly they're all over the press at the moment, <laughs> aren't they? I must say we could have a, a few hours' talk about them just all alone. Right.
1: I don't know if it's just a a very easy way to gain media exposure.
2: (laughs) I suppose it's cheaper than uh, (laughs) some of the other options. Um, Certainly, they're they're obviously trying to improve their squad and some of their recruits have been through ways that have resulted in negative Hmm. publicity, or certainly publicity. Um, And I suppose maybe um, that's an attitude they've taken, that, uh, that they
1: want to get the players in and they'll take the risks associated with it. Well, I guess the hot topic... Coming out, coming out of sale, along with all the other hot legal topics coming out of sale, is the case of Tom R. Scott. Now, I'm not going to ask you to comment on uh, what Tom has allegedly done himself, but how serious do you think a breach of confidence would have to be for a club to take this level of action? Well,
2: when one looks at this from a sporting context, one sees a player who's being dismissed, and that's a particularly unusual um, thing to happen in the world of sport... But one has to look at it as an employment contract that he has allegedly breached. Mm. Now, everybody who is employed owes a duty of trust and confidence to their employer. and That's a, a legal concept, but it means basically your employer has to trust you and have confidence in your ability to be honest and do your job. And similarly, you have to have trust and confidence that they will not mistreat you. They will do what they say they will do to you and they will, for instance, pay you. So it seems as if, um, in this case, there has been this breach of trust and confidence um, that Sale do not believe that they can um, continue to employ him and have taken a view that um, that's why the dismissal has affected. Now. That would be very serious in a, in a in a sporting context, but it happens every day in other walks of life, mm. where um, clubs, deci- uh, sorry, um, employers decide, "Well, I can't trust you anymore. You you need to move on." That doesn't mean it's fair, and may maybe give rise to potential claims for unfair dismissal and aspects of that. But I can understand where the basis has come for this. They, what I would say is, it, certainly the reporting is that sale did follow. Uh, a disciplinary process, an investigatory process and reach conclusions which again is what every employee in this country is entitled to
1: What level of proof would sale need um, in order to dismiss a player? They would have to have a
2: reasonable belief based on reasonable grounds following a reasonable investigation. Now, that is, again, a lawyer's answer. But what <laughs> it means is you have to carry out a reasonable investigation. Okay. You don't have to co- uncover everything and get a p- police officer in to do a forensic investigation. What you do need to is follow all reasonable leads mm. that are presented. So um, anybody who's accused of wrongdoing will be interview, oh sorry, um, subject to an investigatory meeting where they will put forward their version of events and you have to investigate that. Yeah. If after that investigation there's a belief that there's potentially some wrongdoing, it will go to a disciplinary hearing and the disciplinary officer will have to consider what uh, is alleged to have been done wrong. Is there a proof on the balance of probability? So more, believe it more than uh, more likely than not I suppose Mm -hmm. is the best way to put that. And then if they decide that that has happened, decide whether what um, the sanction should be dismissal or something short of dismissal. Mm-hmm. So, um, again, applying this to a situation of a normal employee, you could have a verbal warning, a written warning, a final written warning, or a dismissal. Yes. So, it's working out where on that uh, hierarchy. And now, obviously, the most serious is for dismissal for gross misconduct, which is what appears to have happened in this case.
1: Okay. So, do Sale have the exact same obligations as a normal employer does? Or are there other forces at work here? For instance, do they have to go through the RPA? Do, does the RFU get involved? Are there any other parties that could potentially have an impact on this? Well, the relationship
2: is employer-employee. Now, uh, in employee, uh, in sports context, people often ignore that that's the case, but fundamentally that is the relationship. So they would have to follow the process through. In terms of the Rugby Players Association, one would imagine that they would have supported mm-hmm. an individual who's been accused of gross misconduct. So that would be their involvement. Um, certainly, in terms of this instance, the RFU have um, there has been a report made to the RFU in terms of what's alleged to have happened, but not so much in in relation to the way Sale chose to deal with the disciplinary aspect. So it is um, a, relation, a matter between the employee and the employer, and other parties may have become involved, but it's not a
1: prerequisite. Okay, and if you were advising um, a rugby club. In this, in this manner You before said A reasonable investi- um, investigation I mean What con- would constitute A reasonable level of investigation Would you get, a, get An outside party in For instance Someone with someone with a legal background To make <coughs> sure That all the uh, I's are dotted And T's are crossed That does happen um, Not just in sport But across all
2: Aspects of employment law Sometimes it is Felt that somebody Removed from the emotion Of a situation Is able Or was more, most appropriate To do that But it's not a requirement um, a club the size of I would have people who would not be involved mm-hmm. with uh, the player on a day-to-day basis So may be able to act impartially and carry out the investigation So um, I'm not sure what's happened in this situation But it's not a requirement to have an external person But there are situations when it does happen and lawyers do step in Or HR advisors do step in to carry out the investigation
1: Right okay and so you know just to give you some hypotheticals now um would it be enough for a player on the oppo- on the opposing team to be bragging and that get back via text or would it would there need to be physical evidence of the player handing over a playbook or a recording of a conversation or simply just information which the other team have which couldn't be found anywhere else
2: very difficult to deal with hypotheticals um i don't want to adopt a a lawyer's answer but i do say it's about reasonable belief based on a reasonable investigation so one would have to look at the evidence that was available it doesn't have to be a case of somebody being caught red-handed it could be based on inference but it does have to uh, have some evidence that could lead a reasonable person to believe that the person had done uh, the wrong that they're alleged to have done. Now, given the seriousness of the allegation and the potential implications for a player of being dismissed in a sporting context, there, you would want clear evidence and you would want the investigation to look for evidence that would potentially clear the individual rather than just to
1: um, um, look for culpable culpability. Mm. Now, as an outsider looking in, if we never hear from Tom O'Scott ever again, would you assume that's almost a tacit admission of guilt
2: Again, I'm reluctant to speak about this specific case because of um, the the ongoing litigation and the potential Mm -hmm. issues arising that. But the fact that an employee doesn't appeal a dismissal or doesn't seek to bring a claim in relation to a dismissal does not infer guilt there are many reasons why people choose not to do um, engaging in litigation is first costly and very stressful mm-hmm. so there is um, many reasons why an individual may choose not to do so and if they are able to move on with their life without engaging that process that may be the reason so i would um, resist any suggestion by anybody that uh, to suggest that a inference could be drawn in those circumstances.
1: That's an interesting one, because I mean that is you know exactly the inference that that I would have drawn. Um, <coughs> what avenues are open to a player who is caught in this sort of situation?
2: in terms of first of all, they can obviously defend themselves in the internal disciplinary process mm-hmm. if they're found to have um, committed an act of gross misconduct, they can appeal that in an internal process. Um, then they can also um, consider potential unfair dismissal claims because they retain the statutory right to bring an unfair dismissal claim, assuming they've got two years' service, and potential um, litigation for wrongful dismissal in in the High Court. Um, Those are all options open to the individual. But as I say, um, bad for a lawyer to say it, but you need deep pockets to to get matters.
1: Yeah, well, you just brought something up then which was, the fact that you've got to be employed for two years now obviously rugby and football in fact sports in general careers aren't that long does the time served and the length of the contract impact this in any way or impact the players rights in any way well that was in the context of an
2: unfair dismissal game and um, uh, without wanting this to become an employment law lecture the general <laughs> uh, general position is that um, the right not to be unfairly dismissed um, is acquired after two years continuous service mm. And so, if an employee uh, employee had a fixed term contract that went for three years, and they'd got another two years' service in a in a football con- uh, sorry in a rugby context, then they would get over the two years. Similarly, if they had two fixed term contracts for one year, but their continuous service with the club was for over two years, yeah. they would get over the two year period. So,
1: is it quite important for a, for agents then to be looking at longer term contracts to ensure players have additional additional rights?
2: potentially more so in rugby um, than in football or other um, areas because um, the earning capacity isn't um, what it is in football unfair dismissal um, I think is maybe a road that um, an individual um, presented with dismissal from a rugby club is unlikely to go down because there are limits on the amount of compensation you can recover mm-hmm. so you wouldn't get everything you'd be entitled to under the contract um, there are um, uh, reduced limits in the last few years so it's unlikely that someone would go down the unfair dismissal um, claim um, road so it is something to bear in mind but i wouldn't say it's something that should be at the forefront of agents minds mm-hmm. when getting into a negotiation
1: okay so from unfair dismissal to unfair recruitment uh, sale <laughs> nice segue in, yes <laughs> uh, sale have landed themselves what i consider to be a bit of a superstar in denny solomona now w- one of your uh, colleagues, not direct colleagues, but one of your colleagues in the legal world described this as the rugby version of the Bosman ruling. Uh, what was what was meant by that?
2: Uh, that was a colleague of mine called David Sellerman, and I've uh, given a bit of a stick for uh, saying it's the Bosman ru- uh, ruling for rugby. Um, Bosman was a case in the 1990s where um, a footballer who came to the end of his contract with the team um, he'd been playing for um, tried to move to another club, but was prevented from doing so because his um, current club retained his uh, registration. Mm -hmm. And so he said it was a restriction of movement and um, engaged in a lengthy court case um, involving European law. And the decision was that he could move at the end of his contract without paying any fee to his current club or his future club paying any fee to his um, previous club. Now, that has had huge impacts in the world of football. Um, We often hear of um, players running down their contract and moving on for um, significant salary and signing on fees. Um, That's what that meant in the context of football. Um, In terms of rugby, um, the point um, David was trying to make was that this could have a significant impact in the same way Bosman had, not in terms of the same legal principles that arose from Bosman. What Mm -hmm. he was trying to say is that rugby league and rugby union are obviously um, different sports, but they have similar skill sets, which leads players to move between the two, and this could give rise to a case where some of the principles are regulating the movement between one sport and the other are tested in a court environment and could lay down legal principles
1: which could be relied upon in the future. So when he said it's like Bosman what he meant is it's nothing like Bosman however it will have a rather large impact. Uh that would be putting words in his mouth but that's what I understood and uh, certainly would agree with. <laughs> okay. So with Dennis Salomona it's interesting because we understand that he wasn't he wasn't being paid the market value that you would get in union for a similar role. In fact, we understand him to be paid in the region of forty to fifty, forty to fifty thousand. We also understand, and you know, I'm not sure if this is a, wide, a widely known fact, but I think it's been reported in the press that they have asked for compensation of two hundred and fifty thousand. How do they square that circle between what they were paying the player and what they are requesting in compensation?
2: Well, in terms of the Salomona case, it's it's a very interesting one because. He appears to have acted in breach of contract. I think that's the highest I can put. He seems to have decided that he is going to retire midway through a three year contract and move to a different sport. Hmm. Now, if you breach a contract, the overarching principle is you should be entitled, uh, the person who suffered the breach, so in this case the club, uh, Castleford, are entitled to damages uh, relating to that breach. Mm-hmm. And the principle in terms of breach of contract damages is that you should be put in the position you would be had the breach not taken place, as far as money can compensate you. Um, Now, in the terms of the Solomona case, I understand that from what's reported in the press that there is also a claim not just against breach of contract but also for unlawful interference with a contractual uh, relationship, and that's against sale. So, in effect, that sale have influence the relationship between Castleford and Solomona and cause loss to, to Castleford. Mm. So Sale, are tr- uh, sorry Castleford are trying to get the compensation from both the player and from Sale. The £250,000 is what they say is the value of going out and replacing yes. Solomona. And, um, they would have the burden of establishing that that was the case. Mm. Now in terms of the damages they could have sought, they could seek for the cost of the transfer that they would have got for the transfer fee, which is what they seem to be doing. They could have claimed for potentially the cost of um, getting a replacement for him, though very difficult to get a uh, replacement for a player of that level, or potentially the commercial revenue that they've lost from not having him in the side. As I say, they've chosen um, the the transfer value, um, and they say that's the, the the loss that they have suffered um, by him breaking breaking his contract.
1: See. I find that very interesting because although he was paid 40-something thousand, they're claiming basically a multiple of five times his salary. So, in effect, how do they get around the fact that they've only paid him a uh, a relatively small amount and yet their value is so high? I mean, I don't see how they've come to that, come to that value. Um,
2: I suppose... To, to Take a an example from a different uh, walk of life, and I, I don't mean to compare any salamona to a machine, but if <laughs> one um, was a, operating a company and it purchased a machine that was going to perform a function for a hundred thousand pounds, but mm-hmm. it was only costing fifty thousand uh, sorry five thousand pounds a year to run, yeah, um, and the machine was broken by a competitor you wouldn't be asking for just £5,000 back. You'd be asking for the £100,000 that you'd spent on purchasing the machine. Yes, that's
1: that's a fair analogy, actually. Um, So, do you think that Castleford will ever see this money? Or do you think that right now they are going to be fighting over something more like legal costs?
2: I would be surprised if a a matter of this uh, nature saw trial... Um, there are legal principles involved and um castleford may take the view and the rfl might take the view that these are principles that need to be determined by a court but often these cases <coughs> excuse me often these cases don't see trial because the costs in um that would be incurred in a high court trial would potentially outweigh the two hundred fifty thousand pounds that they're claiming so there may be a mediation to try and resolve the matter um I would expect some kind of payment from Sale to Castleford mm-hmm. um, in their pleadings, so the case that they put before the court, Castleford have referred to an email from um, Sale in which there is a reference to a payment of £50,000, so there seems to be some acknowledgement there that there will be some payment. Um, the, the, what will be in dispute is the extent of that payment, and what Castleford can prove is the value of Solomona to
1: them. Yeah. Do you think it'd be wise for Sale not to play Solomona? Because the worst thing in the world I guess which would happen if they're trying to prove how unvaluable he is, it would would be for him to become a top try scorer in the Premiership.
2: What you would have to look at is um the way the value of him at the time of the breach, not what's happened afterwards right okay. so you'd be looking at the man who scored i think forty two tries and had probably best
1: if they do look it at uh, after after actually uh,
2: so um forty two tries and man of steel last year, so that's the valuation you'd be looking at rather than what he's done since
1: right now as just a ballpark figure here, how much would it cost these two clubs if it <laughs> eventually went to trial, would you suspect?
2: That's very difficult to estimate. Um, I know both sides have instructed um, QCs, Queen's Councils, so senior barristers, um, there are lawyers involved. I couldn't um, guess how long the trial would last, but it's certainly going to be uh, in the six figures.
1: We're talking hundreds of thousands of
2: pounds. I would be surprised. um, Yes, I would expect that this saw a high court trial. It would last at least three or four days, and you'd be looking at that kind of money. So, As in the joint costs of Castleford and Sale.
1: So the worst case scenario for Sale is not only do they have to pay Castleford what they're asking, they've also got to pay Castleford's costs. This could go into the hundreds of thousands of pounds if it went against them. That's pure
2: speculation, it. but yes, a, le- a legal case um, of that nature is going to have significant costs, and the general principle is that the loser picks up the tab.
1: Well. Well, we uh, eagerly await to see how this one's going to unravel. Uh, I, I guess they could have a similar problem in Gloucester as well, because there is talk of Goosen maybe ending up in Gloucester as a uh, part-time, not part-time player, but as a, for a short-term stop. Um, is this case similar to what we're seeing for, for, for Solomona? Very similar in that, um, as I understand
2: it, has been reported is that uh, Goosen has purported to retire in the same way Solomona has. Um, the French legal system is um, something that is completely alien to me. I don't know anything about. But if we take the general proposition that a contract of um, employment or in contract of sport is, I will do what you ask me. So I will play for you for in return for a sum of money, and I will do that for a certain period, two or three years, and if you walk out during that, you are in breach of contract. Mm. Um, that appears to what's happened in both cases, so it's very similar in terms of those principles. Um, what is unclear in relation to both the Goosen case and the Solomon case is we've not seen in the public the contracts of employment and what was allowed in relation to retirement. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, it may be that there was a general entitlement to retire as and when you want, which would mean neither of them were in breach of contract. But if it's the um, what I would expect to be the normal situation that um, they are not entitled to retire unless there has been an injury and there is a consent by the club, then they are in breach of contract. So similar principles, similar... Um, potential remedies available. Um, certainly, the reporting in France is that Racing, Racing 92 are taking it um, very seriously and are going all guns blazing in relation to it. Um, the difference in the two cases is that in the Solomona case, Castleford continued to hold his registration in rugby league yes. but that doesn't stop him playing rugby union because they're different sports whereas in the Racing case and Goosen case they continue to hold his registration and my understanding is that that would prevent him signing for another club now I have seen some suggestion that it wouldn't prevent him signing for another club if it was outside of France mm-hmm. now I've I've not been able to understand on what basis that is as I say I'm not an expert in French law and I've um, not understood the basis of that that's being said, but that's potentially how he could end up in Gloucester um, without there being the re- the restriction in terms of his registration.
1: Got you. So, I mean, I guess if it was going to happen, it would already have happened now. But Rugby League must be looking over its shoulder because if Solomoner manages to get to sale pretty much for, well, next to nothing in Rugby Union terms... Uh, do you think they're going to con- concoct some sort of panel or some sort of agreement agreement with Rugby Union where if they do approach their players, it's going to have to be for a certain multiple of something or maybe salary or a certain fixed value?
2: I think getting into fixed value um, suggestions might um, end up in um, difficulties in terms of European law, as it still applies at the moment. Um, but uh, that would involve... Um, some difficult thought in relation to that I think that the more fundamental point is the difficulty in rugby union rugby league putting their uh, heads together and coming up with something in agreement yeah we're looking at sports that diverged 130 140 years ago now they haven't um, traditionally managed to um, align themselves in any great regard there has been from rugby league's perspective a um, reversal of what was a century's worth of um, them taking rugby union's players. Oh, well. <laughs> and uh, now rugby union is the stronger professional game with the greater revenue. So um, I think anything of that nature would be very difficult. Um, in terms of what could happen, um, these disputes could be referred to the Court of Arbitration for Sport, which is a body available to deal with sporting disputes, but I think that. Um, the court of arbitration of sport would have difficulty applying the rules in relation to two different sports and how they'd interact. Mm-hmm. So I think it would be reluctant to engage. I think the m- more probable way that these disputes will continue to be dealt with is in the court system, where a high court judge will have to sit and determine now,
1: what the value is. I mean, I can tell, you, tell that you're no fan of speculation, <laughs> but what would, in your mind, constitute a good result for rugby league From the Solomona case,
2: rugby league wants to protect the sanctity of contracts. That is something the RFU has come out and said. Mm -hmm. They want to respect the...
0: Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank.
2: Um, but the rugby union has said that they can't do anything because it's a dispute between a club and a different sport and I can understand where they come from that. Mm -hmm. I think that both sports governing bodies would like to see the contracts upheld because that gives certainty to the game and allows clubs to develop Mm. um, with an expectation that their players will remain Um, so I think that would be a good result from the rugby league's perspective as if a court said no this isn't a way to avoid um, your contract you can't just walk out and expect to Not pay any compensation, Um, and I think that would be good um, from a personal perspective for both um, views because um, we don't want clubs to um, become aggressive in terms of their overly aggressive in terms of their recruitment at the detriment of um, the game as a whole.
1: Okay, and could rugby league do anything clever with their contracts? For instance, put in provision that you're not allowed to talk to rugby union clubs whilst uh, whilst you work for them. Something like that.
2: Yes, well again, um, taking this into a more general employment context, um, most um, employees of uh, an executive level have restrictive covenants Mm -hmm. um, contained within their um, contracts and similar provisions could be made um, in in a a rugby league context of saying you're not allowed to um, um, be engaged by another sporting organisation within 12 months following your contract or you're not entitled to... um, uh, engage particularly in rugby union for 12 months following um, your contract. So th- there is those potential um, revenue avenues open to rugby league, and those kind of um, contractual provisions would be more likely to be implied, um, um, enforced by a court by way of an injunction. An injunction being an order from the court that you must do something. So a, a court would be very reluctant to say to anybody who'd walked out on a, a club, you have to go back and play for them, but it would be more inclined to say, well you don't have to go back and play for them but you can't go and play for
1: the other are, team yes I see so I, I just wonder if we'll start to see Rugby League maybe dishing out longer contracts to, it, to its bigger stars in, in order to avoid this kind of situation in the future
2: difficulty for rugby league is obviously um, the financial viability of the game we've seen with Bradford in recent weeks that there is a risk that if you um, as to the financial viability of it going forward long term contracts mean um, commitment to pay if a player um, isn't performing at a level you want him to or becomes injured and or, or, or unwilling to play if we take in the Ross McCormack situation at Aston Villa in a football context yeah. you could end up paying them for a long time and potentially affecting the viability of your club so I think it would have to take a, um, a commercial approach to those situations rather than a legal approach
1: Okay, yeah, that, that makes sense Now, you mentioned um, European, European law briefly before um, I can't remember what the context is that, that you mentioned it but it does bring me on to the salary cap now the salary cap is an unusual thing because as far as I'm concerned shouldn't something like a salary cap be completely illegal?
2: First of all, what we, I think we need to look at the salary cap in terms of we obviously have a hard salary cap in um, rugby union, that being a fixed sum rather than a soft salary cap which would be a percentage of um, the club's revenues. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of the lawfulness of it one must presume it is lawful in the absence of any court decision that has challenged that So it's been in since 1999 Yep, It hasn't been challenged So there is a presumption of lawfulness That doesn't mean lawyers like myself And others don't think about Well should we challenge it But for what purpose, if we removed it some players might get re- receive more money but it may mean there's less money and less competitiveness uh, in the league and that would mean that there's less money going forward so it might be a short term solution. Mm. From a purely legal position um, it would, there's certainly a view uh, that it's, if it's challenged it might be viewed as in breach of European law in terms of um, anti-competition so um, to allow clubs to if they've got more money to um, be allowed to take advantage of that and also it might be viewed as a um, a restriction on the freedom of workers Mm. however any challenge in that regard would be subject to justification so um, the leagues would be able to say well yes it might be um, seen as uh, unlawful but we justify it in certain um, regards and the way they're likely to argue it is that it's justified so as to maintain the economic viability of the leagues and also to assure competitiveness. Mm -hmm. So that clubs, first of all, aren't spending money and going bankrupt, which from a rugby union perspective has been relatively successful but the news about London Welsh yesterday about being removed from the professional game um, it may be indicative of overspending in some regard um, and in terms of the competitive balance they'd be able to point to the success of the Premiership since 1999, clubs have been competitive, it hasn't been dominated by one club for the entire period people have been able to progress up the league and be successful Exeter are a fine example of the success that they've been able to Um, Achieve um, by entering the league Um, whereas um, in a a French situation they do have a salary cap at a higher level Mm -hmm. if that was introduced sorry if that was abolished then there may be a suggestion that everyone would um, spend a lot more money and the game might become uncompetitive and unviable in terms of the revenue that the clubs can generate
1: so hypothetically um could a player who was disgruntled with the system, and I'll give you an example, say if I was a star fly half or a star tight head and I think I'm worth far more than what the salary cap is is allowing me um, and for instance I can't get one of the coveted key places um, could I challenge this in in court? Difficulty
2: is that it's a contract between the league and the governing body so it would be the operation of that, they they are the two parties that, to the contract so they would be um, the only parties that could challenge the contract. The difficulty could be
1: Why is that then? Why is it not the contract between the player and the club or the player and the league? Well, the salary cap
2: doesn't arise um, between the contract, between the club and the player. The salary cap comes from the league. The league says, if you want to play in this league, you have to agree to our rules Our rules include a salary cap Do you want to be a member of this league? The club says, yes, I want to be a member of this league and I agree to bind your rules. And then they, the club applies those rules in terms of managing its playing staff and ah. the, the income. So there's no direct contract between the two. Um, what would be more likely, rather than an individual player, is that a representative body would challenge um, the uh, salary gap if it was to happen. So um, we talked about the RPA earlier, the, a body of that nature. In a football context, there is currently um, a challenge from FIFPRO, which is the equivalent um, representative body for footballers um, who are challenging the transfer system in football, saying it restricts freedom freedom of movement and um, the transfer system should be abolished in its entirety. Um, So if it was going to be um, challenged, it would be more likely to be in that nature.
1: So just explain that, because I know that's in the realms of football, but actually there are transfer fees in rugby. Are they suggesting that a footballer should be able to move whenever whenever they want, regardless of their contract length?
2: No, they're not seeking to suggest that contracts um, um, should be abolished. That's um, fundamental to the security of a player. Mm -hmm. It's not just for clubs. Um, What they're saying is that the the payment of transfer fees um, is unlawful. Oh. What... um, I may be speaking um, beyond... Uh, certainly the impression I get in terms of the FIFA Pro challenge is to negotiate a change to the transfer system rather than the complete, complete aboli- uh, aboli- abolition of it. Um, it seemed to... There was a challenge of a similar nature probably 15 years ago, maybe longer, um, which resulted in the current system where we which we have, and I suspect that there will be... This challenge is a way of getting parties around the table to negotiate a further change.
1: So... If I had a hundred million to spend on a rugby player, uh, sorry, a, f- a football player, and this uh, FIFA, uh, sorry, the what was the who was the organisation that you mentioned again? FIFA Pro, uh, they were successful in their claim. Where would that hundred hundred million go? What is the idea here?
2: Uh, I think you'd have to ask someone from is exactly what they propose in terms of the rebuilding of the system. Yeah. What they're saying is the system as currently enacted is unlawful under European law and that's where the challenge comes from. Um, what would... Um, I think the suggestion in a in an ideal world is that the money um, generated um, is transferred between clubs uh, and transfer fees would filter down to players. Um, what one in a football context thinks about as the transfer fees uh the hundred million pounds or thereabouts that are paid for paul pogba and cristiano ronaldo um but actually most of the game is at a much lower level and the viability of the clubs and the um, and the ability of them to pay players wages is what FIFA pro are fighting for mm-hmm. because many players especially in um, eastern europe and further afield um don't get paid regularly and are left with um um, long periods when they're not paid or are paid at all and I think that's what they're trying to protect rather than um, focusing on the elite game which is very easy for us to do.
1: Tell me this then, from your experience in football, are you seeing any trends in rugby? Because rugby what, is what 30 years, 20 years behind football in, in, um, in some respects are you seeing any trends from the contracts and the money and how it's all structured um, over there coming over to rugby?
2: Well, rugby has been professional for what, 22 years now, yeah. 1995, isn't it? Um, so yes, its it doesn't have the sophistication um, of a long-term establishment that football does. But the skills that have been gained from football aren't just for lawyers and agents who represent footballers. They do transfer over to rugby. So in terms of the negotiations and the processes that are gone through, they are very similar. But there is less money at the elite end of the game. Mm. Um, so there isn't the... Um, Necessity or the um, need to arrange deals in um, tax-efficient ways in the same way. Um, I imagine that at the very elite end of rugby, that there are image rights agreements and um, things like that, um, which are used by footballers to limit their potential tax exposure. But um, not so, at an everyday level for most club rugby players. So,
1: just explain that then. If you were a high-level rugby player uh, you know, approaching a low-level football football player's salary, if you wanted to mitigate um, some of your taxable earnings, you would make an image rights deal and do what with it? An image
2: rights um, agreement. Um, in there are many ways it can be structured, but one of the ways it's structured is a player will sell their right, their image rights. So. Their, their name, the, um, the personal appearances, their um, sponsorship agreements to a company, usually a limited company, and that company will then sell them on to sponsors. Um, the sponsors obviously pay the company rather than the player. And because of the way um, the British corporate system is uh, set up, um, the limited company has less of a tax um, exposure than an individual would. Uh, You can pay through tax um, share dividends rather than through salary, for example. So Mm -hmm. that's one of the ways to do it. Um, What happens um, at the uh, top of the football game, the elite level of football game, is that the player will ostensibly sell to the limited company their image rights and then sell them on to the club they're they're joining. So when a player joins Manchester United, they sell their image rights to Manchester United Ah. and Manchester United go out and market those image rights around the world and um, sell them for a benefit, which is then transferred to the limited company and then a share dividend is paid out to the player potentially into their retirement um, so as to be a pension fund.
1: Wow. So, I mean, it's got to only be a matter of time Before something like this happens in rugby, surely.
2: As I say, I I, I can conceive that it's happening at the top level of rugby. Um, I've not seen or been involved in any image rights um, agreements for the top end of rugby. But as I say, I wouldn't be surprised if it was happening.
1: Wow. Um, Now, we're going to just go back again to Sale (laughs) because this is their third legal problem. And we can speak more widely about the issue as well, but concussions... Um, they've got a case going on, and I'm, I haven't heard much about this recently, but we'll talk more widely. Um, how serious is the concussion issue for rugby union?
2: Well, the concussion issue is obviously very high profile. It's been reported in the media on a day to day basis. And what is um, the implication is that lawyers are the people pushing this and the potential for litigation is what is pushing this and I think that stems from the NFL case um, which settled last year for $750 million or something there about long-term concussion. Um, My view is that this is probably being pushed more by the insurers at this stage, um, insurers, in the sense that um, every player, whether at a club game um, at an amateur level, is insured with um, an external insurer, and at the elite level, and so if they are injured and cannot um, play, or they suffer significant injury, so they cannot uh, work for a period from the amateur game, there is uh, the possibility of an insurance payout.
1: Oh, fascinating! So, so basically, they want to make sure that they don't have a death on a death on a pitch or a claim which is going to be far higher than it needs to be because the right protocol is in place.
2: Exactly. Um, an insurance um, company is obviously trying to limit the exposure it has um, in the, the claims that it has. Um, one could see a professional rugby player who is forced to retire from the game from concussion would have a payout of their future earnings. At a lower level of the game, an amateur game, a player who has a significant injury, a, 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 God forbid, a neck break or something like that, wouldn't be able to work and might have a significant insurance payout, or worst of all, a significant injury to a child in a concussion case and loss of earnings for their future, for their whole life, and the need for care um, would have a big impact um, for insurance companies. So they. I I say I don't know, but that would certainly be one of the reasons I suspect that um, the RFU and the World Rugby are looking at limiting both but also because it's important to protect players in the game and that's something um, that whether you agree with the decision and suggestion that it's reducing um, rugby to more of a touch rugby game as some have said, um, you, you, we do want to protect players um, from a litigation point of view um, there are those out there who are looking at um, bringing claims in relation to this but um, I certainly haven't seen anything that they're about to happen imminently um, in this country, in the, the England and Wales, we have a recognition about the social utility of a game. So if um, the game is of benefit to society, or uh, um, an activity is to benefit to the society, then it's less likely that um, someone will be found to be negligent if they've uh, failed to do something. So th- there is recognition um, that um, sport has an important role within society. And I think any case that does come will have some serious legal hurdles to get over.
1: I see. Okay. so now we've had a lively discussion about this um, (laughs) off-air over coffee. So the new directives have come out from World Rugby. Um, I'd be interested to know your view here. If this is to protect player safety, is it not reasonable to expect World Rugby to have tested the... Directives prior to implementing them in the league? The
2: decision, um, sorry, the new directive that came in um, the first week or 3rd of January or first week of January hasn't actually changed the rules of rugby. Um, It was very interesting to hear Wayne Barnes talking about it on Rugby Tonight recently, Mm -hmm. and um, I saw an interview with. his name completely escapes me, Welsh rugby referee, Nigel Owens, Owens, making the point that what was a penalty last year is still a penalty. It is the sanction that has changed. So from that perspective, I think that um, there isn't the need to change, uh, to trial it. Um, What people are suggesting is that by imposing a greater sanction, it is... um, Focusing the tackle at a lower level um, than it previously was, and people are more likely to come into contact with elbows, knees, and hips. hips. Yes, I mean, hips are the big one. Hips is, uh, and you know, I, I can see that, but if we take it and um, um, if the referees are being told, which are the key people, that we're only applying the rules as they were last year with greater sanction, then I don't think there is there was the need to uh, trial
1: it. Can I just challenge that? Because, of course, if the laws were the same but the sanctions were different for a knock-on for instance, you knock it on, you're immediately red-carded and banned for six months, that would fundamentally change how the game was played and I think the change in sanctions is the same as a change in rules
2: Well, a well, the consequences um have been that people are focusing lower but they should have been doing that previously it's just um the mindset is what your managed risk was mm. and I, I don't think a governing body can be um held responsible or potentially um have to go through a long period of consultation if they're saying "Well, we've always said these are the rules and now you want to reassess your managed basis so, so-
1: the driving—I mean, I know. I guess I know the answer to this. The driving force behind the change in the directives was to limit head contact or limit concussions. Am I right in thinking that? Or am I right, or is it to limit potential liability?
2: Well, I think I think the primary focus has been to protect players, and I think that that's an important aspect that is being lost in some of this debate. I think rugby is a brilliant game because of the physical confrontation Mm -hmm. that it involves. I've always enjoyed that. It's you against your opposite man in some positions, but certainly the opposite team. And that's an important aspect of it. But recognising that players need to be protected is equally as important, if not more important. Um, Players go onto the field um, and accept the risk but one has to look at how the game is being refereed at all levels Mm -hmm. and if it's going to place children at risk, I think that's an important aspect to have in regard to amateur players who there is no restriction on you've had to have played rugby before. You can just rock up to a club on a Saturday and there are many clubs that will give you a game without any training. Yes, that is very true And so the uh, the world rugby has to look at games at all level, the game at all level, and try and protect those players when they get on the rugby field.
1: So do you not think it's a valid complaint for say let's make it the worst case scenario well actually there was a scenario which has been pretty serious lately anyway which is I say his name is Michael Garvey what's his name Garvey from Bath has a fairly serious uh, neck injury thankfully not too seriously on the first weekend of the directives Uh, same game that Tom Ellis got injured and we, we don't know that they were trying to go lower because of the directives, but say if they they were, and say if they said, look, uh, in training we were told to do this because the directives filtered down to the coaches and the coaches recommended that we tackle differently, is that a valid complaint or not? Again,
2: reluctant to get into hypotheticals, but if we deal with it from a situation, players are taught how to do things safely, and mm-hmm. they have been taught how to do things, well, they should have been taught how to do things safely all the way through, and in avoiding contravention of the rules so that's the way it should have been last year and it should have been this year mm-hmm. so world rugby could not be held um, responsible if a player or a coach has decided to go outside those rules last year yeah um, in terms of the relationship between employer and employee um, again it's it's a difficult um, situation because you do owe a duty of care to your employees and you do have to act in their, their, their best interests and in terms of protecting them but again players have decided and gone into the decision of um, ent- playing the game of rugby with open eyes and know that there are risks. Um, the situation will be that players have um, get injured and that's inevitable in rugby. To say that it would have been different because of a rule change very much gets into the hypotheticals which isn't what legal cases are decided on and any case just on that basis is likely to fail
1: ask some questions about the laws of the game <laughs> which i'm going to do because of course as i mentioned that the start of the show you are the uh, di- di- the disciplinary officer a uh, disciplinary officer oh, yeah. for the rfu no no or, sorry no? I've,
2: I've actually a uh, disciplinary officer God. for a rugby club. Um, what I in terms of um, something we have discussed is if you are um, on a, a disciplinary panel then there is a difficulty in appearing and yes. representing people so most of my experience is representing players and it before RFU disciplinary so that, I'll okay. approach it on that basis as a lawyer who's done that um, I do sit as a disciplinary officer in gymnastics and other areas but um, that that's a different context
1: Now obviously these are, uh, these are confidential but have you ever had a, a, a player that you've been looking after it and thought crikey how did he get off there I I actually saw the game Um, (laughs) the traditional lawyer's
2: answer is I don't think about the guilt or otherwise of my client because I'm providing them the best representation uh, that I possibly can and I think it would be breaching my uh, duty to other lawyers if I suggested otherwise
1: now um, oh I missed one out on concussion so I'll come back back to that shortly um Duty of care. Uh, one, of the, one of the phrases that I hate most in the world. Duty of care. Uh, there is a duty of care for a player competing in the air against an opposition player. Which I think we've all widely accepted now in the rugby, rugby world. Probably best if you don't compete in the air because if you get it wrong and you breach your duty of care, you, you're going to get red card. My question is, why is there only a duty of care for one team against the other team And why is there not a duty of care if two players from the same team go in the air with equally disastrous consequences?
2: This is is an interesting situation because um, what the duty of care is is to other competitors in the game. So you have to comply with the rules of the game and make sure that you do not put someone at unnecessary risk, to, to put it in a, a more colloquial way. So when you are competing for the ball, there is the rules that you have to look after the player mm-hmm. in the air. Now, um, if you um, go in into that um, comp- competition in the air and you take their legs away or do something that causes them to fall in an awkward way, that is a breach of the rules of the game. Mm-hmm if it is two players on the same team competing for the ball and one does um, something that causes the other one to fall, there is no breach of the rules of the game. So there would not be no um, doing anything outside the rules of the game so as to breach the, uh, the duty of care.
1: So is it basically something reckless which also breaches the rules of the game, which, which contributes to the situation?
2: Yes, I think that's the best way to look at it. Um, you could see a situation where... Um, one player on the uh, two players in the same team are punching each other now that would be outside the rules of the game because it would be violent conduct generally ah, yes. but in terms they, of the the rugby um, uh, specific allegation um, situation where two players are going up for the the ball, um, if two players on the same team are doing that then um, i, I don 't think you 'd be getting into um, duty of care red card issues that's that. It.
1: i mean this obviously depends on what it says in the law book because i 'm not sure if it says in the law book. Two players competing for the ball or players from either side competing for the, for the ball so that'd be an, an interesting an interesting thing to have a look at actually
2: certainly that's my 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 rationale the rationale I could proffer for why there would be no issue so um I remember when I was playing rugby at university um winger and fullback um winger was coming back, full-back was going up and the full-back landed on the head um, with his teeth of the winger and lost the front of his mouth basically. It was a particularly horrific injury and I I, I don't think anyone was going to be suggesting that both of those players should be getting red cards or anything (laughs) of that nature.
1: Yeah, Do you know what, Um, considering I play Quite a lot of rugby. I I, I hate injuries. I, I'm incredibly squeamish when it comes to any form of injury whatsoever.
2: Well, nobody wants injuries. I think that's what the game is oh. trying to do. We at the elite level, players have got bigger. You know, anyone can watch the um, Barbar's All Blacks game from '73, was it? And the physicality between the sides these days is completely different. And I think that there's a recognition of that level at world rugby, and they have to take action to limit the extent of
1: injuries. Now, now just back to concussions one of the things that we talk about continually on egg chases and my colleague tim cocker is very keen on this and i think to be fair so so am i is the idea of a disclaimer which says um i'm okay with concu- you know in layman's terms i'm okay with concussions if i assign saying this off off we go why would that not work
2: well from from a legal perspective um there might be some issues about whether it was actually a voluntar- voluntarily entered into because it's basically saying you can't play unless you do this so, yes. um, but that would be um, getting into um, legal niceties. I think the more fundamental is why should rugby players have to expose themselves to risk why shouldn't the governing body take a view that we're going to try and limit the risks to you and we're going to take active steps rather than just having a free-for and letting anybody um, do what they want. Um, if they want to do that, then UFC's available. Shove a rugby ball well, in an octagon. that's exactly
1: kind of my point, really, which is UFC is available, and so is boxing, and yet the governing bodies of that don't feel that they need to limit headshots.
2: Well, they do provide uh, limitations and they also provide significant... Um, medical um, provision at at uh, sorry, provide medical um, practitioners at uh, ringside or outside of the octagon to protect players so they recognise that yes people have chosen to enter into a physical sport which may result in them being knocked out um, but they've tried to limit the risks by having um, assistance available if it's needed so it's not just a free for all at uh, a UFC event and it's not just a free for all at a
1: boxing event Okay, Uh, well I'm going to give you one last one last question I think I think you'll find this one more, more tricky than most um, where do you expect Munster to finish in this year's Heineken Cup?
2: Champions Champions Cup sorry <laughs> well champions is the answer to both <laughs> questions uh, I think this year has been a very difficult year for Munster in terms of the loss of Anthony Foley but I think that the side is playing very well we've got a pack of forwards who are very competitive in a European level and for the first time in, in a number of years we've got a back line that Um, looks dangerous and looks physical so I think that at home quarter final I would back Munster against anybody Mm. against Toulouse and then whether it's Glasgow or Saracens I I, I would back us against those I
1: don't know if I'd back you against Saracens, I think you've got one over on Toulouse. Well
2: if if Saracens it's at the Aviva so um I think having it in uh, Ireland would be... I don't uh, think it
1: matters where you you play Saracens. I really don't. Now, can you just give out uh, your Twitter where people can can, uh, can find you with all their sporting issues and maybe mention any events that you might have coming up?
2: so uh, my Twitter handle is UK Sports Law Um, Stephen Flynn SJB is if you type it in you'll find me Um, I'm at St John's Buildings Barrister Chambers which you'll be able to find online so any um, contact details will be there Um, we regularly host um, sports related events um, in Manchester in the North West so the end of next month we're having one on football agents regulations if anybody's interested in attending that please contact me me, and um, in probably September of this year we have our annual um, football law or sports law event uh, in Manchester where we get leading experts from across Europe to come along and speak about uh, the current issues facing sport. Um, Governance was a particular issue last year which is obviously important across all sports and um, if you want any details in relation to that then again contact me either on Twitter or uh, through our Chambers website.
1: And you'll allow me to go to the uh, football conference yeah?
2: Yeah, yeah, you know it's... um, £350 for you. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it will uh, hopefully be a very good event as it was this year. Fantastic. last year.
1: Steve, thank you very much. Thank
2: you. Thank you.
0: Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odour control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter.